Amen. Well, we've been on this conversation in 2 Corinthians, and this is the point where it starts to turn on this chapter, and Paul's going to go on to some other things. He's been yapping about ministry, about fruitful ministry, about all of us being ministers and just painting this ideal picture. And uh, where he's been and what he's been talking about is the need for God's people to be consecrated and consistent in ministry. And we were yapping about that last week. And now as we come to chapter 7, this is one of those places in the Bible you're going to see as we start to get into this that you, you kind of wonder why they divided the chapter where they did. Because it's like chapter, chapter 7 verse 1, it, it's just so connected to what has previously been said. And, said. and, and so, you know, I just remind you that our, our chapters and our verses that are in our Bibles were added much later to help us navigate the scripture to find our way around and get to different points. You know, Paul never wrote these chapters and verses into this letter. Nobody does that. You don't write letters and write, I hope not, chapters and verses into your letters. At least don't do that to me. <laughs> and so they were, they were added later to help us. So... What we're going to see here is that building on all that he had previously said and this call uh, for ministers to be consistent, for this call for ministers to be consecrated, Paul begins to focus in on the subject of repentance. And I would say at the the heart, you know, just as we start to jump into this text, at the heart of personal and corporate revival is always repentance. A repentant heart in the heart of God's people. In fact, as, as we're going to read here this morning, and when we get to verse 10 specifically, Paul's going to say that godly grief in our life uh, gives birth to repentance, and repentance leads us to salvation. Uh, you know, I, I was just thinking about it as I was considering this text. We love to talk about faith in the church. We love to talk about faith as being the means that leads us to salvation, and absolutely it does. But this morning as I came to this text, I'm just reminded that, that faith has a twin sister, and her name is repentance. And repentance has a twin sister, and her name is faith. Now the thing about repentance and faith is this, these two sisters. Faith is a lot prettier than repentance. Faith is more attractive, you know, nice on the eyes, Fun to talk about. Repentance, on the other hand, a little more homely. Get that idea? You know, it makes me think of Rachel and Leah. You read her, their stories in the Bible and you know, everyone seems to have loved Rachel's beauty. And she was ahead of her sister, Leah. You know, she was just part of the package deal. And she was tossed in, not much more than that. And you know, as we read in Genesis, God blessed Jacob's union with Rachel, the beautiful sister. And from that union was produced Joseph and Benjamin. But when you think of Leah, God saw that she was unloved, the scripture says. And he really blessed her union with Jacob. And many children were born of their relationship. See, anytime Jacob came near Leah, something was conceived in her womb. And I would say this, church, we tend uh, to love faith. When we do ministry, we love to talk about faith and acting and walking and doing things in faith. And we trust that when we do things in faith, God will bless. 
Faith is so powerful. It's beautiful. It's got great substance. The scripture says that it just takes a mustard seed of faith and mountains can be moved. And so as believers, as ministers, we, we want to do things in faith all the time. But as God's people, we tend to forget about the twin, repentance, the not so pretty one. See, repentance means that I have to come to some uncomfortable conclusions about myself and about my life. I guess what I'm saying is this. Like Jacob and Leah, who were blessed every time they came together in a unique way, I believe God blesses true repentance in a special, fruitful way. Just like he blesses faith, so he blesses repentance. When God's people enter into repentance, the result is this, that God conceives something and he gives birth to revival in the hearts of his people. He uniquely blesses it. See, power in the Christian life is birthed as we walk in both faith and repentance. And repentance is the one that gives birth to transformation. You know, you might ask this, how, how do you measure a Christian? I mean, how, how do you measure a Christian? Do you measure them by whether they sin or not? No, that's not the measurement. Because we all sin. We all blow it. The measure of a Christian is not whether or not they sin, but whether or not they repent. That's what makes us a Christian. Whether or not we repent before the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether we turn from sin towards Jesus Christ. And so, you know, from cover to cover of your Bible, you see this great example, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> from the men of God when they showed up on the scene that they consistently taught one message, and it's this, repent. Repent. I mean, you could start from the front of the Bible and work your way to the back. Think about Noah. As he was stepping into the ark, <laughs> he didn't say, enjoy showers of blessing from heaven. He told the people to repent. He told them one message, repent. Or think of Jeremiah who was thrown into a pit, not because he proclaimed the flowery future of God's people, but because he told God's people to repent. He preached a message of repentance to a nation. Or the prophet Joel, you know, he wasn't live well and prosper. That's not what he taught. But rather he taught God's people to rend their hearts and not their garments. Get right with God. Repent. Or John the Baptist who came on the scene and never, you know, his message wasn't smile, God loves you. His message was this, repent and be baptized. Even Jesus. Even Jesus' message was not God loves you and so do I. But his message was repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And see, unlocking the full blessing, as we're going to see in this passage, I think, unlocking the full blessing of salvation happens for God's people when we unite repentance and faith together, the twin sisters. Let's check out verse 1. Paul says this. See, we have these promises, beloved. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Since we have what promises, Paul? Well, he's referring back to what we were talking about last week in chapter 6. At the conclusion of that chapter, Paul began to talk about the idea that we are the temple of God. That the Holy Spirit dwells in us. That he lives in us. God has made us his dwelling place. 
And when we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ and turn in repentance from sin to the life of faith in Jesus, God imparts to us his spirit. He gives us his spirit as a guarantee and the spirit takes up residence, the Holy Spirit, in our hearts and in our lives. And last week we were talking about this idea where once we live with worldly desires from the outside to the in, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, the world no longer controls us, but we begin to live this transformed life where we live from the inside out as the spirit of God directs us. The presence of the Holy Spirit and the word of God and the harmony of that relationship and the peace that we feel in the midst of that relationship with God's spirit directs us in our lives. Now the Holy Spirit is sensitive. He's sensitive and because I want to be God's son and because I want him to be my father and because I want to serve him and because I want to live with his purposes and with his intentions for my life and because I want to maintain my harmony with him, Paul says this, what we need to do, we who are the beloved of God. He says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. See, there's a cleansing that God does through the work of salvation as we turn from sin in faith to Jesus Christ. When we're saved, you know, it's kind of like we receive a bath. That's a, almost a picture of baptism. We're cleansed. We, we're buried with Christ and we're raised anew, fresh, born again, sins washed away. And God alone does that. But there is a cleansing that also must take place, Paul begins to talk about here, that involves my participation with God and with his spirit. You know, I was thinking about when Jonah was born. Just, you know, that teeny little tiny nine pounder, <laughs> big guy. But it was so fun to take him home and to give him a bath. I mean, it was an event. You know, if, you, if you've had little one, you've had kids, you, you know that. Especially your first one, it's like, wow. Get them down out of their clothes and into the water. And there's the wrinkles and the lots of skin and the baby fat and all the cuteness of this new little life. And we would bathe him. And we nourished him and we fed him. And the thing is, you know, Lisa and I never made Jonah grow. That happened all by itself. As his dad, as, as Lisa being his mom, we just provided the right environment and he grew. And now he's 11. And he can take his own bath. <laughs> we don't do that anymore. He can take his own shower. But the fact is, I continue to set things up for his success. I paid for the shower and I purchased the soap and my money pays for the shampoo. And I brought, I bought the washer and dryer so that they're clean clothes for him to put on afterwards. And I pay for the hydro so that there's nice warm water. And he has a selection of towels to choose from. He could go with whatever color he likes. I don't really care. See, I'm his dad, and I, have I even got him a house coat to put on afterwards, okay? I have ensured as his daddy that he has everything in place in order to scrub that 11-year-old boy stink off. <laughs> and you know, right now, I need to remind him once in a while. Hey, man. How many days? <laughs> 
but I've put everything in place for him to get clean. And one day the light's going to go on and I won't have to tell him anymore. He'll go every single day to that shower and I won't stop him unless it's like, you know, he's using all the hot water and he can enjoy what being clean attracts to his life. Now in the same way, you need to partner with God. Because God has cleansed you of every defilement in your body and in your spirit. And you need to partner with him and take advantage to see that that cleansing and that washing happens. You know, it's interesting to me that, that there is a defilement, Paul says, of the body and there is a defilement of the spirit. Those are two different things. In many ways, the defilement of the body, I would say, you know, it's easier to deal with the defilement and the filth of my flesh. You know, think of Jesus' ministry. Who was attracted to Jesus? Those whose lives were stained with the filthiness of the body. The tax collectors. The prostitutes. You know, they found it easy to come to Jesus Christ. But those who were stained with the defilement of the spirit. You know those guys? The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They found it hard to come to Jesus. You know, over the years of, of living for Jesus, many of the outside actions begin to clean themselves up, don't they? The outside sins. The sins that could be observed by other people with the human eye. That defilement of the flesh just cleans itself up as we follow Jesus Christ. But the defilement of the spirit that Paul talks about, the legalism, the pride, the self-righteousness, the self-focus, the, the hatred of heart or the bitterness, the unforgiveness. See, those things can all be hidden by the veil of religion. You can wash the outside of the cup and the cup can be filthy on the inside as we know. You know, I, I truly believe that, that the true maturing Christian will sense in their lives, <coughs> excuse me, a, a greater and greater awareness of their own falling short of the glory of God the longer that they serve Jesus Christ. You know, the longer that you serve Jesus Christ, as you grow in him, you're going to have to lean upon him harder and harder and upon his life and upon his grace and upon the forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. See, the outside of the cup gets cleaned and God deals with those things and those things really in reality are cake compared to what you begin to discover about yourself and the defilement of spirit that is inside your heart and what sin has done to you to corrupt you. See, the outside is the fruit, but the inside is the root. And we can cut off the fruit and never deal with the root. You know, I was, I was just thinking about my own experience with the Lord you know, I understood when I was 17 years old and sat in the back row of that church in Prince George and recommitted my life to Jesus Christ, I understood that I was a sinner. And now at 37, 20 years later, uh, from the front, from the pulpit, not from the back row, I realized that, that although lots, not all, that lots of the fruit has been cut off, there is left in me a root system from sin that is complicated and deep, and tangled, and embedded, and established in my life. And, and it births in me a need for Jesus Christ, greater and greater, day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. I knew sin was there 20 years ago. 
but now I really know it's there. Do you know what I'm saying? Does that resonate with your heart? But see, God has put everything in place for the inside of the cup to be cleaned as well as the outside. Cleaning the outside is just the start of what God wants to do. The soap's there. The shampoo's there. There's plenty of hot water. There is a fresh change of clothes from the Lord. And repentance is the mean by which we partner with God's cleansing work. What is repentance? You know, it's a word, it's a word that simply means this. It means the change direction. That's what repentance is. Change direction. A change of mind. In other words, if you're going left, go right. If you were going down, go up. That's what repentance is. You know, we seem to think that repentance has something to do with feelings. I feel grief or I feel sorrow or I feel bad. But repentance actually has nothing to do with feelings and everything to do with a change of mind. A change of direction. It's not an adjustment to the course. Oh, just five degrees this way or 10 degrees this way. Repentance is a full about face 180 degrees. And Paul says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. I came across this by Spurgeon in, in my reading. I want to read you this quote. He says this, I suppose that the nearer we get to heaven, the more conscious we shall be of our imperfections. The more light we get, the more we discover our own darkness. That which is scarcely accounted sin by some men will be a grievous defilement to a tender conscience. It is not that we are greater sinners as we grow older, but that we have a finer sensibility of sin. And see that to be sin, and see that to be sin which we winked at in the days of our ignorance. See, when we partner with God and we have a healthy fear of Him, He, he just begins to root out those things, to clean the inside of the cup, and we need to partner with Him. We need to see holiness brought to completion. Now, if, if you floated around here the last couple months, um, that we've been in 2 Corinthians, and then you know that Paul was writing this letter to this church, and there was a strained relationship between him and this church. Uh, it was tense. The church had had immorality happening in it. And Paul had written uh, 1 Corinthians, and part of what he did there was uh, bring correction to an immoral situation that was happening in the church. But the church also had some leaders, and those leaders uh, were taking shots at Paul from a distance. And so in this letter, Paul writes to con confront those leaders and to give himself uh, a defense by painting a picture of what ministry is. That's why we've been talking lots about what ministry is uh, over the last number of weeks. And so we're going to get a picture a little bit into this conflict that's been going on with Paul. Check it out. Verse 2. Make room for us in your heart, in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. Paul's saying this, I'm legit. I didn't scam you. I didn't rip you off. There's no fraud here. There's no cheating. I am legit. Verse 3. I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. You know, as much as this conflict was going on between Paul and this church, he wasn't down on them. He wasn't there to condemn them. 
He said, you're in my heart and you're in my life. I'm essentially saying, I'm pouring out my life for you. If you die, it's like death to me. And if you live, it's like life for me. Verse four, I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. You know, knowing Jesus, it, it's a wonderful thing. It doesn't mean that somehow life becomes perfect when Christ comes into, into your life. But it does mean that when I am fighting physical things and when I am fighting spiritual, emotional things and fears and anxieties, that God is present to comfort. Paul fought fears within and anxieties without. God is present to strengthen and comfort us. And you know, Paul says something amazing here. He says, I overflowed with joy in affliction. Boy, isn't that great? I mean, we all have affliction in our lives. Paul overflowed with joy in the face of that affliction. Only Jesus Christ can bring a heart real joy in the face of affliction. Verse six. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. How'd Paul get comfort? How did God send him comfort? Well, he sent it through a person, through Titus. You know, sometimes God brings encouragement through unexpected uh, people at unexpected times in unexpected ways. We know Titus. Titus was Paul, one of Paul's sons in the faith. He was one of Paul's disciples. The two of them were traveling and Asia Minor as, as church planters and workers. And I just don't, you know, imagine this. It's not easy to track people down in those days. The two of them weren't emailing one another, okay? They weren't texting one another for updates on what was happening in the ministry. Paul wasn't tweeting the new verse that the Spirit had given him, okay? How do they find one another? How do they do that? How does that happen? So surprise, Bam, they meet in Macedonia. It's a God-ordained thing. Titus has come from all places. Corinth, what a blessing God has sent to Paul. Check it out, verse seven. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. <clears throat> As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. Ah, we got a picture of what's happening. Titus, we find out, has come from Corinth and he has a report for Paul. Paul had sent this earlier letter and he was concerned. He was grieved about some of the things that he had to say, but he had to say them. He had, he had to do it and he wondered how, how it had landed. He wished maybe I hadn't said it. Uh, you know, he wondered whether his letter had been shot down or whether it had been welcomed into their hearts. And now we find out from Titus that it's been received well by this church. Look at verse 8. Paul says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Like Paul's saying this, I second guess myself in regards to some of the things I said to you. Those were hard things. Should I have said it? I don't know. As hard as those words were, 
The awesome thing is, by the grace of God, they received them and they repented. They made an about face. Now verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul identifies for us two kinds of grief here. See that? Two kinds of sorrow and they produce two different types of results. Godly grief, which produces repentance and leads to salvation. Or worldly grief, which produces death. Those two types of grief are powerfully illustrated in the scripture by two men. Judas and Peter. Remember those two? Two of the twelve. Judas and Peter who both left everything to follow Jesus. Judas and Peter who were counted among twelve special men who were with Jesus side by side for, for three years. Seeing firsthand all the miracles that he performed. Hearing firsthand all the wonderful things that Jesus taught. I mean, when you think of Judas and you think of Peter, you don't consider them to be much alike. I certainly don't. But the reality is, is this. If, if Peter had a twin amongst the 12, or if Judas had a twin amongst the 12, it was one another. Judas and Peter. I mean, think of their story. Both of them were called devils by Jesus. That didn't happen for any of the other 12 disciples. John chapter 6 verse 70, Jesus said, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. But then Jesus said about Peter in Matthew chapter 16 verse 23, He turned to Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. But both called devils by Jesus. Jesus warned both of those men that they would fail and that they would fall. Matthew 26, verse 23, Jesus said to his 12 disciples, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. He was talking about Judas. But Jesus also said this about Peter. Truly, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But Jesus said both of them would fail. And both of them were given the opportunity to repent of their sin. You know, it's amazing when you read the story in the Garden of Gethsemane where Judas comes with the, with the soldiers and they come to arrest Jesus. And how does Jesus greet Judas? We know how Judas greeted, greeted Jesus with a kiss. But how did Jesus greet Judas? He said this, friend, do what you came to do. You know, and then he came up and they laid hands Jesus, on Jesus. And they said, you know, Jesus was still calling Judas his friend to the very bitter end in the face of... Judas had opportunity to repent. Luke 22 verse 61 tells us that the Lord turned and he looked at Peter after he had denied him three times. And Peter remembered what the Lord had said to him. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter had an opportunity to repent. And the amazing thing is this. Both of these men repented. But they repented in different ways. One with worldly grief and the other with godly grief. Consider Judas. From Matthew chapter 27 verse 3 which says this. Then when Judas his betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind. He repented. That's what it means. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests. 
and the elders. And we know what he did. They wouldn't take his money. They said it's blood money. Judas did something kind of fascinating. He took the money and he threw it into the temple. And it spilled. You know, just imagine the bag broke open. And I wonder if those coins slid right into the very holy of holies. The priests, the only one allowed, the priests being the only one allowed into the temple, now had to go pick those coins up and associate themselves with the blood money that Jesus was sold for. Matthew chapter 26 tells us that when Jesus looked at Peter, Peter remembered what Jesus had said and he went out and he wept bitterly. And these two men, Judas and Peter, their lives came to very different ends. You know, Judas has rightfully gone down in history as the greatest of all villains. You know, by his act of treachery and betrayal. Peter, on the other hand, man, we consider Peter a spiritual hero. A pattern for spiritual leadership. A man who wrote part of the Bible. He's an inspiration. Not only, he's the first pope. Did you know that? That was a joke. You can laugh. What's the difference? One had worldly grief and one had godly grief. Judas was sorrowed by the mess that he made. And he recognized that he had betrayed innocent blood. Peter? Peter repented before the Lord and he changed direction. Even though it wasn't immediate in his life. Judas didn't repent to Jesus. He was just sorry for the mess he had created. He even tried to take back that money like I mentioned. That he had received for betraying Jesus. But they would have nothing to do with it. And then you know the story of Judas. He went and hung himself on a tree. Took his life. See, worldly grief produces death. Sorrow. Worldly sorrow is always at the heart of suicide. I was just thinking about it. You know, it's worldly sorrow is always at the heart of suicide. You know, I, I don't, you know, maybe that's something you consider and think about in your life. I, I, I want to encourage you. Bring your sorrows to Jesus. Take, take your grief to Jesus Christ. Because if you just consider the, the mess that your, your life is and you leave it there, it'll produce death. But if you bring it to Jesus Christ, if you bring your godly grief to Jesus Christ and repent before him and change your mind and turn in faith to Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. God will save you. You, know, you think about Peter, you know his story. <laughs> he knew Jesus had risen from the dead. He'd seen the resurrected Lord. He saw the empty tomb. And yet, still, you know, sensing his shame over denying Jesus, Peter, Peter, I think, feeling that he could never be used again by the Lord to do what he wanted to do, he went back to the only thing that he knew to do, the thing that he had left behind before he chose to follow Jesus, fishing. You know, he went back to his old occupation. Actually, I want to get you to turn to John chapter 21 with me this morning. John 21. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the last of the Gospels. And I want to read part of this story to you as we see what happens with Peter. You there? You got time for a swig of coffee? John 21, verse 1 says this. After this, 
Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That is the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. It's always a good idea to go fishing. I like that idea. But it was the heart that he was doing with it. He was, he was doing it with a heart thinking he could not be used by God any longer. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Children. Uh, hey, you bunch of liars. Hey, denier. Hey, betrayer. Hey, you good for nothing failure of a servant. What does Jesus say? He says, children. Children. That's the invitation of God. Verse 5 continued. They answered him, no. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. See, Jesus will always tell you the right thing to do. <laughs> Chuck it on the right side. Verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. Then when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for the work, and he threw himself into the sea. Now that is a weird verse. You put clothes on when you go swimming? I don't put clothes on when I go swimming. <laughs> I have enough trouble staying afloat as it is, let alone the weight of extra clothing. But Peter did something interesting. He put clothes on and then he jumped into the water to swim to Jesus. Why is that? You know, I think it's this. I think that Peter's garment, that coat, that jacket, that outer garment, is a picture of his repentance. He saw Jesus on the shore and he said, I'm not coming back to this boat. And he picked up his jacket and his belongings and into the water he went. See, godly sorrow leaves repentance. Godly sorrow works repentance. And you know, I would, I would say this, as you're changing your mind and as God is working in your heart and in your life as he's uprooting things, don't go back for your coat. Don't go back to the boat. Leave it behind. I, I, I don't know what it is that God might be calling you to leave behind, but you need to leave it behind. Make the jump. Grab what you need and cut the rest of it off and get out. Godly sorrow works repentance and brings salvation. No regrets, Paul says. Peter was not going back to that boat. It didn't matter that the boat rolled into the shore. What happened? We read on in verse 8. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. For they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard. Well, he did go back and get some fish, okay? You can go back for fish. And hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, 
The net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. Who are you? Now none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus took some of the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. Now this was the third time that Jesus had revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. We know what happens throughout the rest of John 21. Jesus reinstates Peter. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Three times Jesus asked him, do you love me? And three times Peter answered yes. And he was instructed, feed my sheep. See, godly sorrow works repentance and it brings salvation. No regrets. Verse 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says this. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. See, godly grief has an earnestness to it, like we see in Peter. It doesn't wait for perfect timing. It, it gets down to the business of repentance, godly grief. And, and it, godly grief wants freedom from indignation and from fear and from punishment. And godly grief produces uh, repentance and repentance shows this zeal. Zeal speaks of heat, of a fire. It's, it, it means this, that repentance is hot towards God and hot against sin. There's nothing lazy about repentance. Verse 12. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. You know, Paul was concerned, but when he saw God, concerned about this relationship with this church, but when he saw godly grief leading to repentance and producing salvation, man, it was comfort. Isn't it comforting when you watch someone turn in repentance towards the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, Paul was like a parent disciplining a child. And the kid responded right. Wow. So awesome when they respond right in the way that you hope. What comfort. He goes on. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by, all, by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything he said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. You know, as I've been just thinking about last week and this week and the themes of 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7, I want to say this to you in closing. Remember, the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you is sensitive. He is sensitive. If, if Jesus is your Lord and if these words about repentance have touched your heart and God is stirring something, and there's an area that you feel like the Spirit of God is putting his finger upon. Do not treat lightly what God is stirring in your heart. But at the same time, don't trust your own resolve. Anytime we trust our own resolve, church, that's a mistake. 
Surrender to the Holy Spirit and bring the issue to Jesus Christ. Your resolve, your efforts will fail every time, flat on your face. But Jesus never fails. Jesus' blood never fails. Bring the issue to Christ, take it to the cross, and lay it down there with zeal. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer this morning. Worship team, you guys can come. Jesus, this morning we want to thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit. I thank you, Lord, that your Spirit lives in us, that he dwells in us, that he has made us the temple of the living God. Again, this morning, Jesus, we recognize that your Spirit, his presence is sensitive. We want to have harmony with him. And we want to partner with you, God, in your work of bringing about holiness and righteousness in our lives. We pray, God, that you would complete your work in our bodies and in our spirits. Lord, for those who are dealing with sins of the flesh, I pray this morning that as they bring it to you, that we know, Lord, in faith that you will wash them, forgive them of their sin. Not only that, you'll give them the grace to live by the power of God and overcome that sin. Lord, for those who have sins of the spirit and fighting against those things. Lord, this morning too, we partner with you. Would you purify our hearts? We repent, Lord. As your church, as your people, of those who have served you for a long time, Lord, we don't want to be self-righteous. We don't want to be self-focused. We don't want our hearts to be full of bitterness and rage and hatred. But Jesus, we just want to live like children before you, before your father. And so, Jesus, we repent of those things of the Spirit this morning. We ask that you would cut off the fruit and you'd rip out the roots of sin, Jesus. And I thank you, Jesus, that as you do, you fill us with your Spirit. God, would you fill your people with the Spirit afresh and anew today, I pray. I'm just going to ask that everybody bow, bow their heads and close their eyes. And, you know, as we've been talking about repentance this morning. I want to remind you of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It leaves no one out in this room. No one is left out. We are all guilty of sin against Jesus Christ, against our Father who is in heaven. And that sin has brought a separation in your relationship with God. And nothing you can do can fix that. No human effort, no human work, no religion, no good works, no act of morality is going to fix it. It's, it's, it's beyond repairable unless God intervenes. And the Bible tells us that God did intervene. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus gave his life on the cross for our sin. For the punishment that was due us. And Jesus died. And he was buried. But the scripture tells us that he was raised to life. See. So too God wants to. Bury our sin. And give us life. If we'll put our faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're, if you're here this morning. And you say you know. I want to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. I need to make that act of repentance. For the first time. I need to turn from my sin and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. 
I want to give you that opportunity this morning. I, I won't point you out, but I'd like you to get my attention. And so if, if you would just, everyone bow your heads and close your eyes and respect your neighbor. But if you're here and you say, hey, I just want to give my life to Jesus Christ this morning, you can wave at me or look at me. And I'd just like to pray with you today. Thank you. Look and live. Look and live. Look to Jesus Christ and live. Look at his cross. Look what he did for you and put your faith in him. And he will wash you and cleanse you of your sin and forgive you. Jesus, this morning we invite you into our hearts. Forgive us. Establish yourself as the Lord of our lives. Jesus, today we turn from sin. We repent and we turn in faith to you. I pray, Lord, for those that, who acknowledge that this morning, God, that you would establish your peace in their hearts today, God. I pray that they would know that they're cleansed by the blood of Christ. I pray, God, that you would fill them with hope. I thank you, Lord, that godly grief leads us to repentance and produces salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us. Thank you, Lord, in your name.